right for the last, this is the third week that we've been focusing on a series called The Rise of Leadership. Uh, obviously, we as a church are going through a transition. If you're here for the first time today, the explanation is in your bulletin. But uh, we are in 14 days going to transition the lead pastor leadership role that I've carried for 10 and a half years in this church to Pastor Pete. And so this has been a long time coming. We've been planning for a year and a half. Uh, there's been a lot that has gone on to lead up to this moment, and it is here. And so don't miss it. Be at the installation service on that Sunday night. Um, but the rise of leadership is not just about his rise of leadership as the new pastor. In fact, what we wanted you to catch was that the rise of leadership is about all of us. It is all of us catching God's call to rise up in leadership. We started with David. He is the perfect example of the rise of leadership. Um, he's the second best, <laughs> and that is because he was 14 years old when he was told he was going to be king of Israel, and yet he had to wait. And so we saw in the story what he had to go through in his rise to leadership, how much he had to lay down, how much humility he had to walk through, how he had to be chased by Saul. I mean, the, the story is incredible, yet God's call uh, led him to that place. All right, last week was Mother's Day, and one of the greatest leaders in the Scripture that we don't usually think of as a leader is Jesus' mother, Mary. She was a very humble servant who had in her womb the greatest leader of all time. And yet, it was her call to nurture the rise of leadership, to nurture the rise of leadership. And so, as she gave her life to him as a mother, the day came where she began to have to back off and not be as involved and not have the decision-making power, etc. And so, that was a huge picture of humble leadership. We saw that last week. Today, we're going to talk about the greatest leader of all time, and that is Jesus himself. You know, nobody's going to compare. We're not only going to talk about that person, but the day that he made his greatest step of leadership. Now, uh, the thing about great leaders is that where there is a good leader, other leaders are on the rise. Where there is a good leader, always, he doesn't even have to have a program for developing leadership. Leaders, as they rise up in leadership, other people gravitate with that rise. And so it is a, it's something that just happens. And so every, there, there's always a following. If, you're, if you don't have followers, you're not a leader. And Jesus had followers who were becoming leaders. It was his rise to leadership, but really it was their rise to leadership that he was most concerned about. And so he was constantly discipling them and lead them and giving them example and doing things to show them what it meant to be a true leader. And so he knew even in his last moments before his death and resurrection, he knew that it was all about their 
understanding of the moment. And so uh, it was their rise of leadership. And I'm going to give you an example that's uh, a lot of fun. Today we're talking about our kids, uh, and for me, grandkids today, so here we go. Um, uh, I have five children. They're all grown and gone. Uh, they're all leaders in their own right, my estimation. My number one child, the first child, Matt, is just, you know, he's a typical firstborn, take charge leader. And so Matt's always been a coach, a teacher. He's always been a speaker. He's, he's always been a leader. When he walks in the room, he takes charge. And, uh, and he's always been a good leader. We've always admired his leadership. Sometimes we've had to get out of the way because the boy is going to take the lead, okay? And so that's just, that's who he is. Well, he has, he has, he and Emily, Emily is also an awesome leader, and they have four children. And so Olivia, the oldest, is already, you know, a leader of the rest of the kids. And then you have Wesley, uh, that's a good name, and that's my first name, by the way, my father's name. And then, and then there's Boyce, and then Elizabeth Joy, okay? And so Boyce, got to tell you about Boyce, because Boyce is a wild man, I mean, He's an awesome kid, love, he's loving, but he is a wild man. I added a picture. Do you have it back there? Let's show the picture of Boyce. Do you have that? I don't know. You didn't, did you see the other picture? It didn't show up? Okay. Well, that, you, you got to, yeah, you got to come off. I haven't told you about Elizabeth Joy yet. Boyce um, actually uh, is four years old, and you can't contain him. And listen, uh, Matt and Emily are strong disciplinarians, but you cannot contain this boy. I mean, You've got to corral him every moment. He is on the move. He's excited. He's ready to do something, whether it's, you know, right or wrong. He's just ready to do it, you know. So he is on the move. And so you, you got to watch this kid. And uh, so um, uh, one day, uh, he and Elizabeth Joy, who is two, so he's four, she's two, were playing in the garage. Now you can throw up Elizabeth Joy's picture. You saw it. She somehow got locked into the dog cage somehow. And, uh, and Boyce comes running into the house to Emily, and he's four years old, and he, he goes up and he says, Mama, Mama, um, Elizabeth Joy is locked in the dog cage. But don't worry, don't worry, she's not crying because I told her the story of Paul and Silas at midnight in prison <laughs> and how they didn't cry. <laughs> <laughs> so she's okay. <laughs> and then Emily went out and took that picture. Here's what I know. I know Boyce is going to change the world. I mean, the boy's going to change the world. But, but the reason for that is not just because of his, you know, his, uh, the, uh, the inability to contain him, get out of his way, but, but he's got a leader in his home. And so his daddy, they're rising up with him, see, as he rises up in leadership. Um, now here, in the scripture that we're going to use today, which is John chapter, 1, John chapter 13, we have the last few moments of Jesus in his rise to leadership. Now you say, well, he's already a leader. Well, yes, but he's about to rise to the greatest place of leadership that we cannot even fully relate to. And John the apostle later realized how significant this moment was as they were in the upper room together and having their last supper. They didn't know it was the last supper. 
They didn't realize what was happening, how significant this was. But later they did. Later they got it, and John got it, and he caught it in a way that he didn't see that night, but later he realized. And so let me read you. I like to read the first three verses all together so that you catch the weight of the moment. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. What what a powerful prose. I mean, he wrote something here that had such depth. This was a moment. It was a moment in the life of Jesus, and he knew that Jesus knew. Later he knew that Jesus knew that he, with under 24 hours, was going to be hanging on a cross. And yet the way he conducted himself that night was nothing like one of us would be conducting ourselves if we knew the next day was our final day and that we would have to go through what he would have to go through. There's a scripture in Luke that I just discovered, I think this week, shared it with Carol and then with Pete and others. It's Luke chapter 12, verse 50. And Jesus said this, he was talking about some other things, but he said this in the midst of it. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now, you might, this is something I haven't really seen ever, was that word distress associated with Jesus in this verse. And then I thought, wait, that doesn't quite make sense to me. Earlier in the chapter, he talked about us not worrying, and then he talks about his distress. So I looked it up. In fact, we're going to take a look at the old King James Version and see what it says, because sometimes that King James language actually identifies the Greek a little better. And so here it is. But I have a baptism to be baptized with and how I am straightened till it be accomplished. Now, there's a word I use every day. Oh, how I'm straightened. And so I looked it up and you're going to get it when I read you the meaning of the word. Here it is, to hold together with constraints. So we think of distress as falling apart. This word actually means to hold together with constraint, to compress, to press on every side, to be pressed into the place where you cannot move. That's the feeling. In fact, they compare it of a strait that forces a ship into a narrow channel. So you've got that picture. The strait is forcing the ship into a narrow place. Have you ever been in a narrow place in your life? Of a cattle squeeze. I like this one better of a cattle squeeze that pushing in on each side forces the beast into a position where it cannot move so the farmer can administer medication. I was flipping channels the other day and saw a a bull riding contest and the cowboy's on the bull and, and he's getting all ready and getting all fixed and the bull cannot move while he's in that little corral container. That's what we're talking about. So pressed in. And so, of course, when, you know, after they come out of that place, it takes just a few seconds till that guy, that cowboy's on the ground, okay? But listen, the bull 
is ridden with a cowboy. Jesus was ridden by the sin of the whole world. He was not just pressing into a place of death, a horrid death. He knew the weight was beginning to come on him and pressing him in and constraining him. I am straightened. I am narrowed into a straight and compressed. That's how he felt. And yet it says in John chapter 13, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. You cannot mistake love. When it's genuine, you know it's genuine. And John, in writing this, included that phrase that while Jesus is going through all this stuff, he's loving us like there's, like, like there's no tomorrow, as if tomorrow has no bad thing coming. It's, it's like everything's fine. The way he loved us that night, I just, I just can't believe it. You, you cannot mistake real love. You know that love is real when in the moment of crisis, the victim is more concerned about others than they are about themselves. If love is given when it is deserved to be taken, that's genuine love. Jesus deserved a lot of affirmation, pray for me, help me get through this. I am straightened. But in the moment, Whereas he deserved that, he gave it. Now, the disciples were also there, and they were in a completely different frame of mind than Jesus. In fact, that night, they thought something big was about to happen. They felt the climax coming. They knew Jesus had said something about his death, but they really didn't let that sink in. They really believed that Jesus was about to do what he said, but in a different way. He was about to establish his kingdom, but in a way where he would then take over the world and straighten everything out, and they would sit on his right hand and left, and they would be, you know, and he had, he had basically told them such, that they would rule the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, he had told them things like this. And so they were just waiting. They thought any day now he's going to rise up and take over the world and, and establish righteousness and and so they were that night in a, a, a celebratory mindset. They, they, they were celebrating. They were thinking good things. They weren't thinking about what he was thinking about. And then Jesus said something. He said, someone among you will betray me. And they all looked at each other like, who's the dirty scum that will betray Jesus? Now, I know that's not exact scripture quotation. But they said, they, they looked and said, who, who, who could it be? Now, the reason I know they were thinking that way is because of what happened next. Because in Luke, you can see this laid out. You don't have to go there. But you can see this laid out where that happened, where they're looking at each other like, who, who's going to betray Jesus? Who is the lowest among us? Who is the worst character around this circle? Shifted into the very next verse into who is the greatest among us? Now, I can see that transition. I can see, because you know, a lot of times the way we look good and the way we build ourselves up is that we put other people down. And so if they started looking for the worst person in the group, it was like, well, I know it's not me because I'm somebody. 
In fact, Jesus said this to me, or I, I felt really special here. In fact, he asked me to do this. In fact, I'm one of the leaders in this group. And, and you began to feel this atmosphere happening in the room, and they started talking about it. Well, I, I, I know it's not me. It couldn't be me. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing that. And they're looking at each other, probably accusing everybody else of being the one, possibly. And so they start defending themselves and begin to rise up. Well, I'm the greatest. I, wait, I'm not just one of you. I'm Man, I'm, Jesus said this about me. I'm the greatest. Now, I know you can't picture this happening, but it happens among us all the time. We just don't call it that. They were protecting their position. They felt defensive and the need to defend themselves and to qualify who they were. Now, in that moment, your nature says, take charge, take ownership, take control. But in actuality, the greatest act of leadership that you can take is an act of humility. Let's say it this way. To rise in leadership, you must lower yourself in humility. That's the kingdom of God. To rise in leadership you must lower yourself in humility. It is the greatest act of a rise in leadership. The greatest act is to lower yourself in humility. And Jesus is the example, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So you've got to have this mind in yourself. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' greatest act of rising to leadership was lowering himself to the death of a sinner. Your sin, my sin. Now, back to our story. The Bible says when he saw this bickering going on, that he rose from supper. He laid aside outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. I'm not going to do that if that's okay with you. But he took water, and he began to pour it into the basin. As he was doing this, see, what you don't realize is that as he began to do that, they all went into shock. This was not acceptable in their culture. In fact, the servant of the house that they came to should have washed their feet. But once they got into the room, the, the, the lowest of the disciple should have come and washed each other's feet or washed feet, not the leader, not the boss man, not even the head of the house. What he was doing was a defiance against their culture. Jesus was in a moment of humiliation. They could not take as he poured the water. 
they were stricken by it. They were shocked. You can't do this. You can't be that person. It's not acceptable for you to be that person. The Bible says he began to wash the disciples' feet, to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Then he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? The answer is, yes, I do. Pete doesn't know this. No, I don't. <laughs> now listen to me. This is an awkward moment. But what I'm about to do is extremely important. You know, Pete, the reason I'm doing this is not so... I can look really humble. <laughs> the reason I'm doing this, I, what are you doing? <laughs> Sorry. The reason I'm doing this, Zipper. I got it. I got Zipper. It. I see it. The laces don't do anything. I know. <laughs> the reason I'm doing this is because you're about to take a role where humility will become your friend. See, what they don't realize is that you're going to preach on Sundays. A lot of people will only know you from this guy up here. And they're going to go home thinking, man, he's one of the greatest guys in the world. And you're going to go home almost every Sunday humiliated by the little mistakes you made. By the end of the day, you're just going to feel terrible. And nobody will understand that. And you will have to humble yourself and lean into the grace of God. The devil will use those times to harass you and you'll have to lean into his grace. There are going to be days when you make little mistakes, hopefully not too many big ones, but they'll all seem big to you. Mistakes that other people are going to see, and you're going to have to humble yourself and apologize. You're going to have to humble yourself and... Think of others as more important than yourself. There are going to be days that you are going to be really pumped 
about your vision and your, you know, the things you've got to do today and somebody's going to come along your way and interrupt your day and they're not going to let you do what you wanted to do. It might be your family. It might be your staff. But you're going to have to humble yourself and say, you know what, it's not about me today. There are days, Pete, that you're going to actually share your vision. And somebody else is not going to understand it. They may not even like it. They may even criticize you for what you're going to do, how you're going to do it. And you may be right about the vision and still need to work on it. Who knows what all that works out into. But you're not going to be able to defend yourself with arrogance. You're going to have to humble yourself. and You're going to have to say, you know what? Let's back up and revisit how we approach this. Let's try to do this in a way that other people can understand it. There are going to be days that you're going to have to deal with very difficult people. And sometimes it's going to be somebody that just gets under your goat and you have such a hard time working with that person. It's going to happen. There'll probably be more than one. And you're going to want to, well, you might want to slap them. Or you may want to verbally destroy them. And you can't. You're going to have to humble yourself. You have to love them anyway. Someday, my friends, you're probably, if leadership goes with you as it goes with most, who hang on, you're going to be betrayed. I heard one teacher say, you haven't lived until you've been betrayed. Because betrayal, well, that hurts more than most anything else. But you're going to humble yourself and you're going to forgive. And then you're going to love them. And then you're going to bless them. And then tomorrow comes and you're going to feel it again. You're going to humble yourself. And you're going to love them. And you're going to serve them. You're going to forgive them. And you're going to bless them. And then you'll feel it again. And you're going to forgive them. And you're going to humble yourself. You're going to love them. I think you get the picture. This role you're taking. It's not glamorous. You'll never see yourself the way other people see you. 
you always see yourself as lower than. Always see yourself not living up to the expectations. You will always be in a place of humility. It will become your friend. There will be times you will not know what to do. There will be times you're going to make mistakes that you're not going to be proud of. There will be times you say things and forget to do things and get overwhelmed. And you can't just pour that on everybody. You're going to have to humble yourself and lean in to Jesus. One day, a day might come that somebody interrupts your sermon. <laughs> and those of you who were with us in the beginning days knows that, knows that that happens. And you will not know how to continue in that service. But I don't apologize for this moment. Because I know they don't to leadership is going to require you go to a lower place. I love you. How the heck am I supposed to preach after that? <laughs> he said, Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter is in this moment, <laughs> I can imagine much like I am. Jesus, are you really going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered him and said, what I'm doing, you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Now, before I get into why Peter is objecting so harshly to Jesus washing his feet, why is Jesus even washing their feet? It seems like somewhat of a weird thing to do as you're sitting down to dinner, doesn't it? There's two reasons I want to dive into really quickly. Pastor Craig has already kind of touched on one of them. And that is, as you heard, they're kind of acting like two-year-olds arguing over who's the greatest. Who's the greatest? Who's the best? Who's the favorite? You know, I can imagine... John, whose gospel we're reading in this moment, say, you know what? I'm the one that Jesus loves. 
That's how John referred to himself in his own gospel. You realize that? The disciple whom Jesus loved. I'm, I'm the favorite. Maybe Peter piped up in that moment and said, you know what, guys? I walked on water. I am the greatest. You all stayed in the boat, but I got out and walked on water. Maybe one of them said, well, Peter, you sank, so you're obviously not the greatest. <laughs> Maybe Bartholomew says, what about me, guys? Maybe I'm the greatest. And they all look at him like, most people aren't even going to know you're one of the disciples. They're not even going to remember your name, you know. He's one of those guys that people don't really mention much, and we forget that he's one of the disciples. There's this dispute, who's the greatest, who's the greatest? And you can imagine in this moment Jesus thinking to himself, guys, I've already told you. If you remember in Matthew's gospel, Jesus told them that the greatest is the one who will be the servant. He said, I didn't come to be served by others, but to serve you guys and to lay my life down as a ransom for many. So the first reason he's washing their feet is what, as he looks around the table at his closest friends sharing one final meal with them, he notices two things. The first thing he sees are proud hearts, and he needs to teach them about humility. That's the first reason he's washing their feet. But the second thing he sees as he looks around the table, ironically enough, is dirty feet. It's dirty feet. He sees proud hearts and dirty feet. Now, we have to understand in this culture, it was common courtesy when someone came to your house for dinner to wash their feet before dinner. It sounds weird, but it's true. If you were to come to my house to dinner today, if it was cold outside, I might say something like, can I take your coat or can I offer you a drink? That's common courtesy. But if you were to go to someone's house for dinner in Jesus' time, two things would happen right off the bat. You'd walk in the door, they would greet you on the cheek with a kiss, and then they would ask, can we wash your feet? Why? Well, because when they sit down for dinner, you got to understand their tables were different than our tables today. We sit down at tables that are upright on chairs, and our feet go under the table, usually covered with socks or shoes, you know. And, but back in those days, they had lower tables, and they actually sat on the floor when they ate. They sat either Indian style or reclined as they were eating. And they lived in a desert climate, and they wore sandals. They didn't have automobiles back then. They walked everywhere they went. Traveled the same roads that animals traveled, carrying goods back and forth, so roads covered with animal dung. So you can imagine how dirty and stinky and nasty their feet would get traveling to and from. And so when they'd enter a house, before they'd sit down for dinner, the host would get a servant to come and wash their feet because nobody wants to eat dinner with a bunch of stinky feet sitting in front of them, Right? You got food right in front of you, and you got stinky feet. It's not very appetizing. We would never do this, though, would we? You know, I can't imagine coming to your house saying, hey, Pastor Pete, it's great to see you. Can I offer you a water, and can I give you a pedicure? You would never do that, right? Especially if you saw my feet. I'm sorry, Pastor Craig. <laughs> Let's face it, feet are kind of nasty. And this was the job that, as you heard Pastor Craig say, was reserved for the servant, or if we can be totally honest, one who was a slave. The host would never, ever do this because it was beneath them. So they'd have a servant or a slave 
do it. The host would say, I would never do that. I would never do that. Reminds me of a story I recently heard of a guy who was experiencing some health challenges and, you know, knew something was wrong, went to the doctor, had some tests run, you know, went home, got a call from the doctor, said, we got the test results back, and it's pretty serious. We want you and your wife to come in. So he and his wife go into the doctor's office, and the doctor actually wants to talk to the wife first. So the wife goes into the doctor's office while the husband stays in the waiting room, and wife sits down and says, what's up, doc? And he proceeds to tell her, says, well, it's not good news. Your husband has a terminal illness, and he will probably die. There's a small glimmer of hope, though, that he can be cured with some treatment, some chemotherapy, and, but it's going to require a very strict eating regimen. You're going to have to cook for him three times a day, all organic, no processed foods, no sugar, and the environment in which he lives is going to have to be super clean. You're going to have to wait on him hand and foot. You're going to have to make sure that everything in and around the house stays sanitary and clean. It'll be harder than you can possibly imagine. But if you do these things, if you cook for him, if you clean for him, if you wait on him and with treatment, he might be cured. She said, well, thank you very much, doctor. And so she leaves the office, heads out to the waiting room where her husband is anxiously and nervously waiting. And he says, well, what what did he say? And she looked at him and says, I'm sorry, honey, but you're going to (laughs) die. Because I ain't doing that. I ain't doing that. How many of you have said that before? I'm not doing that. I'm too busy for that. I'm too important for that. That is beneath me. That requires too much. I am not doing that. Jesus is at the final meal that he would share with his best friends. The night before, he's going to give his life. And he looks around the room and he sees proud hearts, who's the greatest, and dirty feet. So what does he do? He thinks to himself, you know what? I'm going to kill two birds with one stone. I'm going to teach them something they're never going to forget. I got this. And so he gets up and puts on a slave's apron, picks up a bucket and fills it with water. And when he does this, as you heard Pastor Craig say, the disciples would have been aghast in that moment. They'd be like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. what are you doing, Jesus? What is going on right now? Peter even said, I read it a minute ago, Lord, you will never wash my feet. It is impossible to describe this moment. I tried to think of how we could understand this in modern day. It would be like the Queen of England coming to your house and saying, can I wash your toilets for you? That would never happen, but this is even lower than that. We're talking, we need to understand who is doing this. This is Jesus. This is the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the Prince of Peace, the living water, the bread of life, our redeemer, our righteousness, the light of the world, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the king of kings and the Lord of lords is stooping down and doing something that was reserved for the lowest of the low. I see a need. Their feet are dirty. I can do something about that. Jesus loved them to the end, as verse 1 said, by doing something that everyone else thought was too low to be done. The greatest is the one who will be your servant. Jesus, the Son of God, got down on his knees and washed feet. He saw a need and he met it. What do we do? I'm not doing that. 
I'm too important for that. That's beneath me, right? I got too much going on, too busy. You know, there's something I think we could all learn if we just tried to train ourselves to do this when we wake up and just ask ourselves, God, give me eyes to see. Needs that I would otherwise overlook. Give me ears to hear those who are hurting. Give me a heart to care. And before you walk past something that is a need that is presented to you, pause and ask yourself the question. If we could all learn how to do this, say, God, is this an assignment that you have for me to meet? If we could all do that, I think our lives would look very different. And here's what I found. Most often when I believe it's really something that God wants me to do, it's those times that I feel like it's beneath me, that I have too much going on or that I'm too busy. Someone else can do it. And it's in those times of pride that I really believe God wants me to stop and serve, meet the need. You know, my wife is constantly teaching me about what servant leadership looks like. I don't know anyone who has more of a servant's heart than my wife. From the moment she gets up in the morning to the second she lays her head on her pillow at night, many days not ever having enough time to even sit down because she's constantly serving. She's serving me. She's serving the boys. She's serving the church. And everyone that knows Kelly loves Kelly, wants to be friends with Kelly because of how genuine and warm and friendly and caring she is. But what a lot of you guys don't realize is how strong of a leader she is as well. She's the worship director here at Life Church Buffalo. And last month, we had baptisms here on April 30th. It was an incredible time in our church where God moved. We saw, you know, so many people take that next step and go public with their faith. But the week before baptism, I was gone on a conference all week, and Kelly had built a small team to come in and prepare the building to make sure that we were ready because we were expecting God to move and we wanted to make sure the table was set, that our environments were presenting excellently because we wanted people to know that they matter, that we were ready because the attitude of expectation is the breeding ground for miracles. So when I got home like midnight on Friday night after being gone for four straight days, you know, Saturday would have been a really great day to just spend the day with my family. After, and reconnect with them after being gone for four days. But in the afternoon on Saturday, Kelly said, you know what, we've, we've got to go to the church because there's some things I didn't finish earlier this week that have to be done and ready for baptism tomorrow morning. And so as a family, we went to the church, came here, and I watched as my wife, the worship director of Life Church Buffalo, who could have easily tried to delegate some of this stuff or Ask somebody else to take care of it. She could have easily said, I'm too busy, because she really is too busy. But as we walked around the building just to make sure everything was done and in order and ready to go for the next day, I find my wife, as I'm trying to see where she's at, she's got yellow rubber gloves on, and she's in the men's restroom cleaning urinals and bathrooms. We, clean, we have our building clean every single day, or every single week, rather, but there was still somewhat of an off-putting odor in the men's restroom. It smelled like a restroom, and we didn't want it to smell like a restroom because that was the area that we were going to have people be getting changed in. We didn't want them to feel like it was dirty or gross or disgusting. So my wife is on her hands and knees in the men's restroom, cleaning the bathroom floor. She's saying, I got this. I see a need. I'm going to meet it. I'm going to take care of it. I got this. She's teaching me every day 
what it means and what it looks like to serve. Because I tell you, when you get outside yourself and you have eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to care, you will see, you will find opportunities to serve others. Suddenly you're like, you know what? I can do that. I got this. You're going to see maybe a friend who's getting ready to move, and though you're too busy and could find plenty of other things to do, you remember that people helped you move. And so you'd be like, you know what? I'm there. I got this. I can help you move. Maybe you'll be at church one weekend. You might see a garbage can overflowing that someone hasn't gotten to yet. And rather than thinking, you know what? Somebody will probably get that eventually. You think to yourself, you know what? I know how to take out the garbage. I can take care of this. I got this. I got this. They need help in the nursery. We are growing. We have younger families coming to the church. It's amazing. We have, you know, babies in there that need to be taken care of so that mom and dad can come for an hour and a half and meet with God, connect with God in a distraction-free environment. And you can say, you know what? I've had kids before. I've been around kids before. I know how to wipe babies' butts. I can do this. I got this. Are you a mover? Maybe not by profession, but today I am. I got this. Are you a garbage person? Today I am. I got this. Are you a baby butt wiper? Today I am. I got this. In fact, I'm one of the best baby butt wipers there is because I do everything as unto the glory of God. Right? There ain't no poop in those cracks. I scrub those things clean. This is a dingleberry-free baby butt because I'm doing everything for the glory of God. I got this. (laughs) I got this because I've got eyes to see. And the greatest are those who serve. And listen, when you go and wash feet, when you're doing this, when you're serving someone, You don't need to do this. That's actually pretty good. (laughs) You don't need to grab or have someone get the Instagram shot. Hashtag honored to serve. Honored to serve. Making a difference. Look what I'm doing. I'm serving the poor. I'm helping the needy. Look at what I'm doing for her. Check me out. Honored to serve. Don't need to do that. Because when you're serving with the right heart, nobody needs to know. When you're serving with the right heart, it's not about you. When you're serving with the right heart, it's not about your gift or you getting recognition for what you're doing. It's about you meeting other people's needs as you serve God for his glory. I can do that. I got this. I got this. The rise to leadership, the rise of leadership is not just about actions. It's about attitude. I was created and gifted by God. I get to show the love of Jesus today. When you have the right attitude, the right actions will flow, even if you don't feel it initially. It's not about actions. It's about the attitude. Because serving is not what I do. A servant is who I am. You need to get this. It's not about action only, it's about attitude. Serving is not just what I do, a servant is who I am. Serving is not what we do as a church, servants is who we are, that is our identity if we're followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, follow me. 
And listen, you may never ever know or hear about the difference you make, but when you have the right attitude, it won't matter. The right actions will follow. Serving's not just what we do. Servants is who we are. It's the attitude. It's why one of the things that drives me crazy when I meet people that find out I'm a pastor is the conversations turn weird. Especially if that other person is a Christ follower as well. We could be having a completely normal conversation until they ask the question, what do you do for a living? And I say, well, I'm a pastor. And all of a sudden it's like, well, praise the Lord, glory to God, praise Jesus, hallelujah. And I'm just like, what just happened? We were having a perfectly normal conversation and you turned into a religious weirdo. Right? Let's be real. Or if they're not a Christ follower, they all of a sudden feel like they've got to clean up their acts or, you know, impress you or not offend you or something like that. Just be real. One of the things that drives me crazy when people find out I'm a pastor is this phrase that I hear over and over again. In my five short years of vocational ministry, I cannot count how many times I have heard this. When I tell them I'm a pastor, one of the first things I hear is, oh, you're a pastor? Well, we've been looking for a church for a long time, but we just can't find one that meets our needs. Just can't find a church that meets my needs. We've been to 14 churches in town. I just can't find a church that meets my needs. Need to find a church that meets my family's needs. And I just want to scream out and say, please, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, we are not spiritual consumers. We are spiritual contributors. We are contributors, not consumers. The church does not exist for us because we are the church. We exist to meet the needs of the world. We're not looking for a church to meet our needs. We are the church, and we are here to help meet other people's needs. Therefore, if this is your church, if this is where you worship, if this is where you're growing, if you're not using your gifts, guess what? You are selling yourself way short because Paul said we're all part of the body of Christ. We all have gifts. We all need each other. So if you're only going to church but you're not serving in the church as the church, then there's something that God wants to do that isn't getting done because he wants to do it through you. Peter, the same guy that didn't want Jesus to wash his feet would eventually write a letter that said, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. The way we steward God's grace is by serving others. When we don't serve others, we are taking God's grace for granted. We are trampling on it. We are hoarding it to ourselves. And that's not what we're called to do. As Christ followers, going to church becomes more about what we give than what we get. Because we're spiritual contributors, not spiritual consumers. Listen, when you serve others, God changes lives. And the first life he usually changes is yours. When you serve, God changes life. And the first life that is usually changed is your own. You know, I just listened to somebody and I got to pray for them. I got to make a difference today. Thank you, God, for letting me make a difference today. I sacrificed and gave up some of my time to help somebody in need. Thank you, God, for helping me make a difference today. You just thought you were a school teacher. No, 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 no. You are a secret agent prayer warrior placed by God to pray for that place, to intercede for the students that pass through your classroom. You just thought you were a bank teller. No, 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 no. You're there to love people to Jesus every single day. When you go to bed at the end of the day, 
and you look back and say, you know what, God used me today, that's a really good feeling, isn't it? That's a really good day. When you spend the day on yourself, you go to bed feeling pretty empty, don't you? You want to be great in God's kingdom? You want to rise to leadership? Then follow Jesus' example. Walk in humility and learn to be the servant of all. Just run it really quickly. I want to show you a couple servants from our church. This is the rise of leadership, guys. This first pick is Tim and Cheryl Jakluski. They've been coming to the church for about a year now. And every time you talk to them, you just hear excitement as they feel honored and privileged to serve the kids in kids' life. What you would never know is that both of them face some pretty serious health challenges, but they don't let those things be reasons or excuses for why not to serve. They serve anyway because they're Christ followers. And Jesus said, if you're gonna follow me, you need to walk in my footsteps. You need to do what I did. The next servant here at Life Church is the guy that just stepped to the keyboard. His name is Daryl Whitcomb. I asked his permission to do this. We've been privileged to, you know, experience the blessings of God's presence and worship. And Daryl is part of the team that helps make that possible, facilitates that environment for us to be able to focus in and connect with God. But what many of you guys don't know is that Daryl suffers from crippling anxiety, panic attacks. And he's got an artificial eye. Has he used those things as an excuse to not serve? Every time I talk to Daryl, I just hear the same thing over and over again. I'm just so honored and privileged to serve and to be a part of what God is doing here. And when I asked him if I could, you know, use him as an example today, he said this. He said, I promised my king that I would have my yes on the table for Life Church." He's just so thankful to give back because of how much God has saved him from. The last pick here is Rich and Alice Clarkson. And Rich said this, from the moment I walked into Life Church to attend Man Cave, I just knew this was the place for me. Everyone was so friendly. And coming from a Catholic background, I had never heard men pray and talk the way that they did that, that night. I was grinning ear to ear. So I ran home to tell Alice what I experienced and soon we were there on a Sunday morning. Wow, we were greeted so warmly and immediately felt like we were home. And that is something we've been hearing over and over again from people who come to our church for the first time is that I just felt like it was home. From the first service on, all we wanted was to be a part of what was happening here at Life Church. Then John Spaschak asked to get together with me and he talked about getting us involved. We just love it. From the first message of the Messy series to finding our small group to the Case for Christ and the movie event, the Easter egg hunt, Baptism Sunday, it's just amazing how many wonderful new friends we have and how many great things we've experienced in only four months. We have a lot of love to give, and Life Church has provided that outlet to plug in and give. We're just so excited to see what God is going to continue to do. I could go on and on. I could show you dozens more. Like Jackie, who has been coming to our church, I think, for maybe six weeks and is already serving every single weekend in kids' life. Six weeks here. 
She serves one, attends one, because she gets it. She too said this place just felt like home. She understands that we're here to help meet the needs of others, and she wants to be a part of that, because she knows that Jesus said it's more blessed when you give than it is to receive. Listen, I'm not trying to make a plea like, hey, come help. We need more volunteers. I know that's what some of you might be thinking right now because this is not about what I want from you. This is about what I want for you. I'm saying if you do this, it will change your life. This is a part of being a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ. When you step outside yourself to serve others and make a difference, your life will be changed for the better and it will change the lives of those around you. You wanna change your marriage? Start serving your spouse. You want to change your friendships? Start serving your friends. You want to change your community? Serve your community. Get involved with community events. You want to change your relationship with God? Serve his bride. Serve people in the church as the church. I'm so, I'm just going to say, I'm so tired of people saying how they just want to go deeper with God. They want to go deeper with God. They want to go deeper with God, but they don't have time to serve anyone. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Love is expressed through humility and acts of service. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So who are you serving? Who are you serving? I'm going to close with this. I prepared more than I could do because I didn't know something like that was going to happen. So I'm just going to skip to the end here. The end of that passage in John 13, verse 12, Jesus It says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. What did he do? He looked around the room, saw a need, He got up and he met it. That's what servants do. And that's what we're called to do. You see a need, you meet it. That is how we rise to leadership. We love like Jesus by serving people. Humility is required in the rise of leadership. And humility is expressed in how we serve one another. Jesus, thank you so much for this time together as a family as a spiritual community, God, and I thank you for not clinging to and holding on to your position as the Son of God, not demanding rights because of who you are, but for showing us what it looks like to love and to serve, to empty yourself, to divest yourself of all of your rights, your divine privileges, to become one of us, experience the same pain and suffering and human experiences we've all had, betrayal, and still love them to the end. And in the very last night, you would spend with them before you would hang on the cross for their sins. took the lowest position of all. God, I just ask that as a community, as a people, we wouldn't be so concerned with position or prestige or being recognized, but that we would just want to 
honor you and serve you by loving others and serving them, seeing a need, not making an excuse for why we can't do it, but just meeting it. You know, if there's anybody here today that has never made a commitment to Jesus Christ to follow after him, this same passage of scripture, right after, you know, Peter said, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus would respond and say, unless I wash your feet, you have no part of me. And then Peter would say, then wash my hands and my head too. Wash all of me. He said, that's already been done for you. This is a picture of what Jesus came to do. He came to wash us of the things that make us dirty. He came to wash us from the things that have separated us from God. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, he is here right now offering that forgiveness to you. He wants to wash you of your sins. If you're here and you want to say, yes, you know what? I want to follow Jesus Christ. Would you just raise your hands all across this place? Anybody here today that wants to say, you know what? I want to follow that kind of Jesus. Anybody here today? Well, Lord, I just trust that you're speaking to hearts right now and that you're changing lives and that your Holy Spirit is conforming us more and more every day into your image, bringing us closer to you. Lord, we thank you for this time together. In your awesome name we pray. Everybody said. Amen.